Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org podcast coming your way. Hardcore edition, guys. Episode 156, Rich Gaspari. Steve Smee here and the mobster. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Good. Sun's coming. We're going to have some hot weather the next couple of weeks. I'm going to turn up some more. And talking about hot, we're going to do Rich in this episode, guys. So Rich, he's got an interesting history. We're going to get into that. But for the most part, guys, we're going to talk about a sterile use because that's what you guys want to hear. So first, a little bit about him. Former pro, came close to winning multiple Mr. Olympias. The guy that he could never get past, Lee Haney, who dominated during the late 80s. He was five foot eight, 255 pounds, nicknamed the Dragon Slayer. He was in bodybuilding for a dozen years. So early life guys born in 63 he is an old guy now he's he is uh gosh um new jersey as you can tell if you watch his videos you can tell by his accent his personality definitely a a jersey boy the interesting about him growing up he loved the, the superman the hulk he wanted to be as strong as them those were his inspirations and that was a big thing back in those days you had those, you know, uh, comic strips and you had those, those types of things and guys got into it. You, and you started getting into shows and movies during the 70s, early 80s. They started making movies about the superheroes. So these were the guys these guys looked up to. In his teen years, he had the pleasure of watching Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno dominate that decade. And when he was 14... He started lifting. He only weighed 110 pounds. So he's kind of like me. Pretty much the same thing. He's really, really lean, really, really skinny. And that is something that's a lot of us have when we're teenagers. And then we start lifting weights and the magic starts to happen. He trained six times a week. Same thing with me. When I was a teenager, I trained six times a week. Loved it. His goal was to become like his bodybuilding heroes, Arnold Schwarzenegger. 19 years old, he was over 170 pounds, lean and mean. Everyone knew he would have a bright future bodybuilding. And he dominated his early competitions. 1983, he won the NPC Juniors. He earned his pro card the next year, winning the 84 World IFBB Amateurs. So I'll let you uh, jump in, Mobster, but let's kind of go over his professional competitions Really early in line, 21 years old, Mr. Universe won it. Youngest anyone had ever won it. I'm not sure if that record has been beaten since. I might have to look into that. But uh, at the time, definitely he was the first. He competed over the next decade at the Arnold, the Grand Prix, Night of Champions. He either won them or placed in the top three. And his Mr. Olympia finishes were incredible. In 85, he finished in third place behind Lee Haney and Albert Beckles. And then over the next three years, he was second place behind the great 
Lee Haney, who he, we did a, a uh, podcast about. You guys can go back and watch that. The next year, 89, he got fourth, then fifth. And then 91, he fell back to 10th. So that was a very impressive run over, the, over those six, seven years. He retired in 96 from bodybuilding. And since then, he's been a businessman. So I'm going to bring in Mobster, and then we'll kind of get into his other stuff. Yeah, I'll just jump in real quick. Uh, Rich is uh, in the pre-show research talks about the how dominant Lee Haney was. He's on Generation Iron being interviewed by Vlad, and uh, he says, "What was that like?" Etc. And he says, "I've got to be honest. In my opinion, I believe that Lee Haney was the most dominant uh, athlete because he says Ronnie Common, although he won as many times, he lost one. He went away. He came back. He lost again. He lost again. Lee Haney didn't." He won eight in a row. And he says, um, I mean, from, from, I'm just thinking back to my memories of that particular time. And the, the freak factor that uh, Rich Gaspari had, Mr. Rip Glutes, I believe, is one of the things that he was called. Dragon Slayer was another because he pretty much kicked everybody else's ass at that time. He's one of those guys that when you sit down sometimes, meathead sit down and say, who should have been Mr. Olympia and wasn't. Rich Gasparri has got to be on that list, but he come up against that aesthetic, that V shape, the, the height, and probably just the whole alpha maleness of Lee Haney. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those like, you know, anybody but, and I'd have been Mr. Olympia, but Lee Haney. And then of course, as we're going to get into very briefly, the training and the training with Lee Haney it was Lee Haney's training partner. And I believe actually uh, he lived with Lee and, and Lee's wife uh, for some period of time, around the time that he was a training partner. So that's how close that relationship. And in fact, the only thing I can think that compares with it in terms of uh, relatively modern bodybuilding is the whole Arnold and Franco stuff, but, you know, training partners, number one and number two, uh, you know, living together and, and being buddies and kicking ass in the gym and then being just rivals on stage. So you've got that kind of attitude, that kind of element to it. Um, the terms of the business stuff, and this is what comes later on, the social media and so on and so forth. Gaspari Nutrition is, has been, is, and, and probably is now, again, with all the issues that he's had with, with, with business issues and divorce and everything else, was a real big company, very active in the industry, and, and a bit, at one point especially, quite the leader in terms of putting products out there that were edgy, potentially ready to get banned, et cetera, et cetera. As I said, he went through a bunch of business issues again and a divorce and all that at the same time. And what was interesting in the comment that he made himself again in this interview was, he says he described himself as being in the trenches that time. And, and Steve Smee and I have touched on this before in a previous podcast where training becomes your anchor. So for him, going to the gym where all this stuff is going on is still the foundation stone on which everything comes from the business the bodybuilding, the competition, training is his foundation stone, it's his anchor, it's the thing that gets his head right and enables him to overcome and go forward. On to you, Steve, as far as the nutrition is concerned. Yeah, let's get into his nutrition and his training, guys, very, very important, and then we'll hit a steroid use. I know everyone wants to hear about the steroid use. So he liked bodybuilding foods. He's not shy about it, but the interesting about Rich and, and some of the other bodybuilders is he, he kept his calories lower than everyone else. It seems that we've done. He keeps them in the 3,500 calorie range. He believes in having a tight waist, waist and not overeating. So we see these big bubble guts 
and bodybuilding because guys are so obsessed with getting protein, protein, protein. I got to eat. I got to eat these carbs. I got to get so much fucking food in me. And then they look pregnant. And we see this not just with bodybuilders, but in every middle-aged American male. And I, I think it's the same way getting like that over to over there in Britain as well and in Europe because their father just the middle class, you know, has money. They can go out and eat what they want when they want. So that's what people do. I'm hungry. Let me throw some food at my body. So he, you know, I like, I like that strategy because, you know, you should be able to walk around with a tight waist year round. It's healthy. It's healthy. You don't put stress on your, on your organs that way. So he's a big fan of eggs, peanut butter, rice, chicken, steak, potatoes, and vegetables. He also messes around with fruit and some dairy as well. So mobster will get into his training and then we'll hit his steroid use. I'll, I'll, there's two parts as far as the training is concerned. Um, I'll just marry things. So a five-day split, uh, taking the weekends off, basically means, guys, you're training five days a week, Monday through Friday. I mean, though you can actually move those five days around in any part of the week. And having the weekend off, you're splitting the body. So you're doing upper body, lower body, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for example, I mean, some of your stuff's kind of old school. So front and back, for example, that's chest and arms, chest and triceps chest and back, you know, you can do those variations and Rich is out there with that kind of stuff. And, you know, talking about him in his particular case, which is something I also do for myself, is that literally, although he's not splitting hams and quads, he's pretty much spending uh, one training session, it's just legs. Now, in terms of the, the training, and this is the thing that I liked, uh, both by reputation and by his own admission, again, in the pre-show research, this guy wrung the attitude and it talks about specifically going to Gold's Gym. And Gold's Gym around that time was starting to fill up with actors and movie people and, and, and you know, business people and whatever else. He wanted to train in Gold's Gym because it was the big gym uh, to train at. So you go from, you know, the, the, the one where Arnold was training to the bigger three-roomed place, 100,000 square feet, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and it became a kind of place for everybody to go to. And Rich came just at that time when there were still a few people there Mike Christian, Lee Haney, et cetera, et cetera. And he got it into his head before he met any of these guys. I want to be the hardest training person in that gym. He talks about doing 700 pound squats. And I believe his reputation was at that time. He's one of those guys, I think Sean Ray's talked about this kind of stuff, where they want to bury you. They, they don't want anybody to kick their ass when it comes to training, of course. Now, when you've got a still decent number of pros training in Gold's Gym at that time, this catches their eye. And lo and behold, this is how Lee Haney is literally the, the connection because Lee, Lee Haney says, you know, that's kind of hardcore and he's seen what he's, Richard's doing and, and essentially says to him, you and, you and I should train together. You and I should kick each other's ass, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know about you, Steve, because I've trained a lot of the time on my own, but it has occurred to me that people that I've competed against, if we was ever living that little bit closer and whatever else, and, and we trained together. I, we'd have probably either torn something, a muscle would have gone, uh, some sort of strain, or we'd have burnt each other out. But by the same token, the, the, you got if you're lucky, as in the particular relationship these two guys had, you're bringing the best out of you. You're getting a guy that's winning the Mr. Olympia and a guy that should have won the Mr. Olympia training together. You've got the, the aesthetic, the shape, the dominance of Lee, and then you've got that just ripped, gnarly, nasty freaky looking muscle 
that Rich brought to the stage. And these are the two guys that are training together and, and just bringing the pain, bringing the glory, bringing the muscle, and essentially being number one and number two in the whole world. We talk about in this podcast, Lee, that you know, if you're on the Olympia stage, you're in the top 100. These two guys is number one and number two out of how many billions of people on the planet in the same room, training at the same time, and they're training partners. So the intensity has to be there. The dedication has to be there. And as I said earlier, and in fact, touching on the food, if you're living in the same flat, the same apartment or whatever it was that the relationship was at the time with Lee's wife, you're eating the same kind of food. I mean, one of the podcasts we've done, was about two of the podcasts we've done recently, address the same thing where you've got Rami living with Dennis James and having a, an ex-Mr. Olympia compare, uh, training with the fellows about to become Mr. Olympia and living that lifestyle, living that kind of stuff. It can probably be a little bit too much for a great many people, but for short periods of time, a year or two, and especially when you're training for competition, that intensity, that dedication, that focus has got to bring up the absolute best. So yeah, that would have been an interesting experience for someone else who perhaps wasn't on that level to come in and see what that was like. But for these two guys, and obviously is the focus of the podcast here, Rich Gaspari, it brung out the very, very best of the two of them. So yeah, let's do the steroids. Let's kick some ass on the steroids next thing. So Rich doesn't talk much about his steroid use. Um, he's kind of private about it, but we can kind of delve into what he would have used as he was chasing Lee Haney during the mid to late eighties. What's interesting about this, the transition between the 70s and the early 80s into the mid to late 80s is class warfare. And we, I credit Lee Haney for that because Lee Haney was such a humble, uh, genetic freak, okay? And he was extremely intelligent when it came to this stuff, but he was also very humble where he didn't really, you know, he didn't want attention. So during that time, people were chasing Lee Haney. During the 70s, people were mostly chasing Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they were chasing physiques. The 70s and the early 80s, yeah, uh, Samir Banu, really the last guy who was that small to win Mr. Olympia in terms of weight. So what changed from the early 80s, mid to late 80s? So we can kind of delve into that when we talk about this. During the 70s and early 80s, they messed around with Primobolin, Proviron, Deca. Okay, those types of steroids, very mild. They didn't aromatize into estrogen. They wouldn't give you size. They wouldn't get, they're not, they weren't androgenic. And they were, and then during the mid to late 80s, they started to get into using estrogen blockers. Novavex started coming around in bodybuilding. Someone, some genius thought of the idea of using Novavex. So Rich would have used Novavex here. And by using Novadex, he that gave him the ability to up his Deca dose, run Dianabol, and not have to worry. In the 70s, the forked steroid, by the way, that they used was Dianabol, but they had to run a very little amount of Dianabol. They couldn't run a lot of it. So they'd run a few of them a day here and there. But if they ran too much, they'd end up with estrogen problems and they had no way to combat estrogen problems. Rich had that ability. These guys in the mid to late 80s had that ability because the Novavex came around, especially toward the late 80s. He also threw in HGH, probably 10 IUs per day of HGH. So he could run, uh, he could run testosterone, he could run more DECA and not have to worry. He could run more Dianabol and not have to worry. So that was a secret weapon to these guys. 
So I'm going to guess it's about 600 milligrams a week testosterone sipping and then he dropped it to zero ahead of the competition versus in the 70s and early 80s, they'd run zero testosterone sepanate. <laughs> so they wouldn't have to drop it to zero because it was already at zero. And then another thing, Prima Bolin, 1,200 milligrams a week. In the 70s, you know, rumors were that Arnold ran about 100 milligrams a day of Prima Bolin. He's running about twice that, 1,200 milligrams Prima Bolin. So the amount of steroids increased, the times of steroids got tweaked a little bit, but they were still using the old school Prima Bolin and Deca and Proviron, but they were kind of increasing the dosages and then adding the Dianabol, the HGH, the testosterone, and then the Nolvidex to combat the estrogen. So Momster, what do you think about that? Does that make sense? How would you play this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if it's a historical thing, as you said, we've, we've done a lot of podcasts where the guys are 90s and upwards bodybuilders, and we start to see trend coming in and trend use and, and access to trend, whether it was for the Phenoplex, whether the cow pellets, or whether it was, you know, an actual uh, proper drug in, in that in, it comes in a vial. Uh, and obviously now access is, is, is easy, but in those days, it wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, and I think what was interesting for me, and I made a note here as, as you were talking there, Steve. So one of the things I think I remember Rich saying in, in a previous uh, way, way before, in fact, even not even the pre-side research, I was reading and watching something. And Rich says that what they did then, and I'm assuming Lee was much the same, was they monitored what worked. A lot of guys take the attitude, and I'll, I'll touch on this just from seeing a thread on a forum this week, and I've back two threads, where the guys are changing what they're using from cycle to cycle. So you've gained 10 pounds on this drug, and then the next cycle doesn't include that drug. You can change it to something else or a different version thereof. And I'm like, if the first drug worked so successfully, keep using that. And the way that Rich was talking, and certainly athletes of his time, was that they, if they took a drug and it worked well, you know, it got a tick. And if it took a drug and it didn't work, well, it didn't get a tick. And we're not talking about really the, the, the whole UGL and fake gear wasn't really around that time. That came kind of later on. Yes, there were some labs. Yes, some of the guys were getting the gear from Mexico. At Rich's level, you can assume quite easily that instead of, you know, out of the trunk of a car in a gym car park, you're talking about stuff like doctors, fans of bodybuilding and guys that used to go from Gold's Gym and see a doctor nearby. This is rumoured stuff for years. So stuff like that, we can assume is quite real. That If there was anything that might have been a little bit iffy, it would have been a growth hormone at that time because you're right on the cusp of the whole, you know, monkey brain and placentas and all that kind of crazy shit that people were talking about at that time. It's also probably around the same time that Dandrew Kane started writing stuff as well. So that would have influenced the bodybuilders. But what, I'll go back to my point here. The guys... It feels the same. I, I look watery on this. I'm not going to use this. If if Novadex leans me out, then I'll keep Novadex in the cycle. And that makes sense to me. You quite often get guys, in, in, especially in this day and age with Google and the accessibility to information, where they, 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 they feel like they have to try everything. That's not necessary. If something works really well, use it again, guys. If something makes you watery for a competition, and you're normally super lean and your diet's on point and your cardio's on point, then it's probably a drug issue. So you, this is the way that Rich and Lee and all the other guys at that time would have worked. They would have sat down, either in conversation or by keeping training and notebooks, et cetera, et cetera, and just done stuff. We talk about for competition, 
if you've never done a competition before, we talk about what we call a trial run. And I think this is where these notes and this kind of conversations come in. You have to be aware of what works for you. You have to be aware of how your body responds. And I don't know about you, Steve, but I wouldn't want to be going to the Mr. Olympia, trying new stuff out, trying experimenting and change, completely changing my cycle for my last cycle. If my last cycle got me second place at the Olympia and I was ripped to the bone the way that Rich Kaspari looked, why the hell would I be doing new drugs? Why the hell would I be doing a new protocol? Why the hell would I do the same protocol that I did before with maybe three, four, five pounds of new tissue from last year and doing everything else the same, water manipulation the same and so on and so forth. We, we don't mention here in the article, but again, I think just on the cusp, maybe mid 80s is when you might start to see, and again, I'm thinking of Dandrew Kane bringing in the, the whole possible, telling people about water manipulation through diuretics, but it was very much, that's very much a 90s drug. But I think in mid, you know, you look at about 85, 86, 87, 88, maybe you're starting to see something in there. To be fair, I don't think it was that big of an issue when Rich was competing. And so what you saw on stage with Rich was probably just literal old fashioned water manipulation, drying out, staying thirsty, and doing all the things that the guys did naturally to get as, as dry as possible. Things with uh, skin fillers and uh, thinners and things like this, and um, very old school niacin and that kind of stuff as a, as a pump to bring out the small blood vessels and give you that capillary type stuff, that little veiny look and gnarly look that Rich was able to bring. I think the 100, 101% thing is, Steve, as we could talk about these drugs from now to doomsday, but he has to be hungry. And I don't think any of these drugs that we're discussing here are going to give him those rip glutes. That's got to come through crazy levels of cardio, maybe too much, but really, really, really being hungry, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, if you look at it, it, it as a cycle, as we're suggesting, there's two or three drugs here where we talk about pulling them out ahead of competition so that there's almost no water. So that whole stuff, things like dandelion root are going to be thrown in there. Things like, you know, uh, that I'm missing to recall the guys mucking around with um, distilled water, which is a bad idea because you need some of those minerals in there. But again, they were experimenting. So a lot of what these guys were doing here at this particular time is just on the edge of what we call crazy cycles and some of the crazy drugs that we don't recommend or you only should be using if you're a proper competing bodybuilder. These guys brought us the information. These what, what Rich was doing probably formed some of the stuff that was being experimented with by other people. And again, it's the sort of stuff where Daniel Kane was starting to bring that kind of information to the masses with those books and stuff that appeared at that time. I know for a fact, and I've probably got a couple in my collection upstairs, this is the time that those secrets started to filter out into print. And so, again, you could, this is where someone would have loved to have had a look at his diary, loved to have looked at his notes, loved to have seen what he was doing. And I said, Rich was probably one of the more analytical in that particular way. He wouldn't be the businessman he was what is today, and he wouldn't have been a number two bodybuilder in the world at the time if he was not, uh, certainly, but he wouldn't have been the only person doing that, Steve. So this is the thing, guys. Again, you don't need to change your cycle every single time. If the last cycle worked, if, if you want to get dry and ripped, and the last cycle made you dry and ripped with your diet, with your cardio, do the same damn cycle again. You can change the numbers a little bit if you need to, if your response is a bit off. If the last cycle got you big and bulked when you want it to be big and bulk, do the same damn cycle again. You don't need to change things. You, in fact, you should keep notes. Steve and I will talk about this possibly on the forums where you can say that I felt really good on this and I felt horrible on that. I felt down, I felt up, I felt great. I felt strong in the gym. 
I was dry, I was ripped this morning. I did the same things as I did yesterday. I look amazing, I look vascular. That's how you should think. And I suspect, for my, for my thinking, he doesn't talk about it as much as Steve said already, but I guarantee you, because I have heard him talking about this analytical stuff, this, this, this note-taking, this analysis of what was working and what was working is what made him good. Otherwise, as we see sometimes with the top pros now, you see the variation. One time on stage, amazing. The next time, 12 months later, with no competition between, shit, just, just something to matter. Watery, full, but not dry, whatever. There's, there's loads of stuff going on. Uh, we, we've got two or three people that would come in soft for a competition at win and then get harder and harder and harder as they get to Olympia. That's, that's a sensible approach again, because you can't be crazy on point three competitions, four competitions in a row. But fortunately for Rich, because of the impact that he'd made earlier on, he was able to do, you know, I, I, I don't think they had the whole qualification thing in those particular days that they do now. So he's not going to go out and do a load of bunch of competitions and qualify for the Olympia. He's only got to do the one big competition of a year. Everything else was almost certainly guest posing. I don't even remember him going on the on the Grand Prix tour, Steve. So he had that a fortunate position, perhaps. It, it, the, the rules are that the, the, any Mr. Olympia is automatically qualified for the Mr. Olympia forever, which would have applied to Lee, but it wouldn't have applied to Rich. But I don't recall there need, being a need to fall Rich, etc., to qualify if you were in the top three. Uh, and certainly it would be unnecessary because you're talking about a guy that was world-class number two bodybuilder anyway. So, yeah, I have to say, learn. Learn from him, which is keeping notes, seeing what works, keeping that in your cycle, your next cycle, and throwing out what didn't work, throwing out what didn't make you lean, et cetera, but obviously making sure the other variables are on point as well. Back to you. I think it's, in, it's interesting in, in this era was that you were seeing the physique starting to change. Trial and error, exactly what Mops were saying, they didn't have access to the internet at a time. Information was not fast. You couldn't go on a forum to find information. You had to try it yourself. You had to do trial and error. In some ways, it's better than the way it is today because now it's TMI. It's too much information. Yes. However, you also have to remember in those days, if you want to learn how to do a squat, you couldn't just pull up a YouTube video and see a YouTube video on how to do a squat, how to change a, a, a ceiling fan. You couldn't just go on YouTube and look up how to change a ceiling fan. In those days, if you needed someone to help you, you had to either know someone that can show you to do it, how to do it, or, and you had to get in touch with that person back then, believe it or not, there was no email. I couldn't just email my buddy or text my buddy in those days. Hey, meet me at the gym. (laughs) You had to call him up on a landline phone. And if he's not home, he's not answering. So you had to- Or, yeah. it. or just send them a letter. Hey, just, man. You just, and then he, you just reminded me, Steve. There was guys, one of the interviews, I'm not sure if it's this interview or, or the one that we're going to do shortly, Romano's. He talks about being updated with a letter in the post with photographs that have been developed <laughs> at the local chemist or pharmacy, and they develop the photographs and then posting them for the guru, the trainer, the coach, the advisor, who's waiting for these letters to come once a week with the photographs. And so now you can do hourly updates by, by your phone, by WhatsApp. Yeah, it's so incredible, yeah. yeah. From my knowledge, I'm trying to think now, Steve, I think there was two books, two, that you could buy. One was one of Dan's. And there was another one out there that suggested it had secrets. That was all there was. If you didn't get it from your buddy down the gym that competed or from the guy that was selling you stuff out the trunk, 
you have, and, and again, the guy that's selling stuff out of the truck is not necessarily the most trustworthy source of information. Then there was these two books. There was, there was, I mean, 1980 seems to be, I mean, I think I didn't really have access to the internet myself till around 1990. It makes us sound a million years old. But that's it. So the, and, and, and then you still didn't have this level of information that we got now. I think as Steve said, it's true. There's an element of too much information. And one of the things that's slightly annoying with that is that the guys tend not to re retain the information because they don't have to, because they can go back and refer to it. And the problem with that, as I said already, is you, you, you have other things going on in your life, guys. And so, for example, if you're married, if you're going on holiday, if you're getting... You're doing a million things. If work is crazy, if your career is going crazy, et cetera, et cetera. I've got training diaries here that are older than some of our listeners. I've got training diaries here older than some of our members on the forum. And I can look in there and see what I was doing when I started when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, whatever the age of the diary is. And assuming that I wrote down, I've got notes somewhere, I typically write out my cycle on a piece of paper when I'm going to do a cycle. What do I want to do? What do I want to achieve? What does this particular steroid do? Is it going to help me achieve what I want to achieve? I also can look at my experiences and I go, right, I've never used that. I've never used that. I've never used that. So I don't know how that's going to work for me, but I have used that. I respond, for example, Steve, legitimate VAR, five pounds, I get stronger. Legitimate Debo, I can take it on a Friday and by Monday I'm four pounds heavier. And that's on 30 milligrams a day. Uh, best cycle for me ever. Decker and uh, Sustin in terms of gains of weight, overall strength, feeling good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, 100%. Test Enfinite, never worked for me. My guys would love it, never worked for me. So I go 100%. Would I use Test Enfinite in the new, uh, next cycle, especially something that's uh, helping me with strength? No. Why would I? It's not going to do anything for me. Never did anything for me before. The guys are all loving it, so it was legit, but it didn't do anything for me. I didn't put any weight on, or I didn't feel good on it, et cetera, et cetera. And this is different. I said the only thing that was coming out there at the time, going back to Rich, of course, is the whole growth hormone thing. Where growth hormone now is, is kind of like, if you're not doing growth hormone in your cycle, especially as a competing bodybuilder, what the hell are you doing? But at the time, growth hormone was very much touch and go because we were talking about the whole cadaver thing, getting it from dead bodies, uh, the, the, the rumors going around about taking out monkey brain juice and all that kind of stuff. And if any, if any drug was going to be faked, it would be growth hormone. I mean, Steve, can you remember the cost at the time? $1,000 a month or whatever the hell it was back in the day? Even guys like Rishka Swire would have struggled to be able to afford that. Even, even 15 years ago, it was very expensive. Nowadays, yeah. you can get it online from a UGL. Cheap. Uh, yeah. you know? But, you know. I think enough low dose, enough for a month, $100, $200. There are thereabouts, depending on your dose usage. Uh, I, I know guys with specific medical conditions that use $500 a month, but that's still only the equivalent of about 80 pounds at UK a week. Now, if you can go out on a night out, guys, and spend that with you and your buddies having beers and, and shots and whatever else, the idea that 80 pounds a week for your growth hormone is expensive is kind of not, especially if you wanna, you've got the disposable income. So there you go. You're talking about essentially what was, in those days especially, probably the equivalent to two to three weeks salary versus the equivalent of half a day's wages. So that's just to give you a comparison, but it did come in around that time. Novadex, as Steve said, I, I'm old enough to remember that when I started training would be in 1980. I didn't start using it until a lot later on, but I would be reading in the time of doing my research, et cetera, et cetera. And Novadex was something that the guys were using when I started to look at 
where Rai's going to do a steroid cycle. And again, for me, that would be just over 20 years in. So around 2000, certainly the late 90s. Uh, but and again, we're talking about competitive bodybuilders out, out in California, getting this kind of information, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, back to you, Steve. All right, guys, so that covers it. <clears throat> Rich Gaspari, hope you guys enjoyed it. And Mobster, take us into the disclaimer. Disclaimer as always, guys, please note we are not doctors and opinions that we express on this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view and it's based on experience and views on the topic comes over many, many years. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the first amendment.